Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another uh, episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And today I am so fortunate. I get to be joined by Dr. Jalal, who is a neuroscientist at Cambridge University, previously at Harvard University, and considered one of the world's leading experts on sleep paralysis. Thank you, Dr. Jalal, for making time to talk with us. My pleasure, Katie. So tell people a little bit about what you do. Since, you know, being a leader in sleep paralysis, I'm like, do you just watch people sleep all the time? Is that what part of your research? <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, no. So, so what we do is that we, we study sleep paralysis, which is this very interesting phenomenon. And then we've been lucky to sort of study it around the world and, and see how different people uh, experience it. Um, and so to your viewers, maybe I should explain what sleep paralysis is because it's yeah. quite, the, the, quite the experience. Uh, well, it started with my own experience. So let me tell you that. Um, I was, uh, I was a teenager uh, in Copenhagen, and uh, one morning I was lying in my bed sleeping, and I realized, you know, my God, um, I'm awake. Like, it feels like I'm awake, but I can't move. I can't, you know, do anything. You know, what's happening? Uh, you know, am I paralyzed? Am I going to die? And then I felt like something was on my chest, uh, you know, pressing on my chest, strangling me even. I was, I was terrified at that point. And then I felt like also... You know, this, this, evis, this evil, vicious, uh, you know, feeling got just more and more tense with each second. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, I, uh, I felt like the, a ghost was there, you know, sort of literally, you know, in my, in my room. Uh, I thought I was going to die. And, and uh, you know, the next day yeah. I, I looked into this, you know, I didn't know what to do. Like, do I Google? Uh, I saw a ghost, uh, you know, I felt like a ghost uh -huh. was in my bedroom. Like, what's the solution and things like that. But it certainly introduced me to this. You know, uncanny phenomenon where you're paralyzed, unable to move, unable to speak. Uh, and then, uh, but, you know, if you feel like you're awake, you can see your surroundings. Uh, and occasionally you will feel like there's a, you know, terrifying ghost present or you might even see a, a ghost there. So, so this is what we study, uh, uh, you know, sleep paralysis. And we've been, you know, studying this around the world to see how different um, cultures understand sleep paralysis. Oh, that's interesting culture. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, from what I've read, so definitely out of my scope of what I studied in school, but something that a lot of people experience, I've even personally experienced that where I felt kind of awake. I didn't see the ghosts, but I've heard from my viewers that a ton of them have, yeah. but I had that terrifying feeling of what's wrong. I can't move. Yep. Yep. And I, like you, I read about it and learned that your body in order to protect you from hurting yourself in your sleep. Yep makes you you're like paralyzed so that you know even though i'm playing soccer in my dream i'm not you know right. kicking around and yeah, yeah. potentially hurting myself yeah. um but it can be really terrifying and one of the the main questions i guess i've heard from my audience but also personally i'm curious do we find so so i assume and this might be incorrect that everybody has sleep paralysis every night but we don't always like wake up to it does that make sense yeah that makes sense so you're right in the sense that each night we, we cycle through different stages there's about four mm -hmm. stages of sleep um and one of these stages is called REM sleep and during REM sleep you have vivid lifelike crisp dreams right so you see yourself on the moon you know uh drink, you know having a snack from the fridge yet yet uh, Queen Elizabeth is there too. You're drinking tea with her and everything. So everything yep. is uh, warp, time, places, people, right? And so for you not to um, act out the dreams and hurt yourself and your sleeping partner, your body uh, paralyzes your entire body. Um, your brain paralyzes your entire body. So there's a structure in the bottom of the brain and the brain stem that um, you know, re releases a certain chemical and, and then you're paralyzed. Uh, so we go mm. through this each night. Uh, but occasionally, in some people, you will wake up during uh, this, uh, this stage and, and experience this clash of worlds, meaning you being awake on the one hand and then being paralyzed on the other. So about, gotcha. uh, yeah, so it's about 25 uh, people that will have one of these experiences where they actually wake up during uh, REM sleep and, and uh, have sleep paralysis. But we have this REM paralysis each night. There's actually, uh, gotcha. Katie, there's actually a group out there... Um, with that, with a, with a genetic uh, issue where they will not have this paralysis. So unlike oh. most people, you know, 99% of people, whatever it is, mm -hmm. they will actually have what's called REM behavior disorder. 
So, uh, so these guys will shout and scream in their dream, you know, uh, while dreaming and you know, oh, hurt their sleep. Is that partner kind of stuff. like the, I had a girlfriend that did this all the time. It made relationships really hard for her yeah. <laughs> because she'd have to explain like, oh, I scream in my dreams yeah. a lot. Yeah. Is that related to night terrors at all? Or is that like a completely separate thing? We can just, we just don't become paralyzed. Yeah. So, um, there is REM sleep and REM paralysis, right? And this is the, the REM behavior disorder, that, that disorder mm -hmm. where you sort of shout and scream and you act out these bizarre and vivid dreams, right? But in night mm -hmm. terrors and, and these other sort of parasomnias, they occur during one of the stages of sleep called deep sleep. Now, deep sleep is the stage before REM. And during deep sleep, you're oh. really, it's a different stage of sleep. You're engaged in sort of... Um, uh, your brain engages in sort of house chores, so it will clean your up your cells. Mm -hmm. Your immune system is sort of re, sort of regenerating um, your hormones. That so it's a very refreshing stage stage of sleep. Uh, um, so it so during that state, if you wake up, you will um, have things like night, night terrors or you know the kind of dreams where you wake up uh, and you start walking, sleepwalking, you know, or sleep eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So you might wake up and go to the fridge and eat like frozen foods, and you're kind of you're sleeping. Pretty much, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so you might do this. Uh, so, so yeah, these occur during deep sleep and not during REM uh, per se. Okay. Yeah. Is there? Do we know? Just out of curiosity, because I've I specialize in eating disorder treatment. So the night eating, yeah. like in our sleep, I've had a couple of patients, probably only two or three over my years working with people yeah. who do that, and they put locks on cabinets and yeah. fridges to prevent them from doing that. Yeah. Do we know? like what causes someone to do that? Like, is there, is it a chemical difference? Is there a part of our brain that isn't operating? Like I know you said it's in the brainstem. There, that's where it releases the hormones or the chemicals to cause us to be paralyzed. Yeah. Um, it, do we understand what causes someone to be a sleepwalker? Cause I know I don't sleepwalk, but I sleep talk and not everybody does that. And do, yeah. we, do we know what causes that? It's a great question. So these parasomnias, right? So they're a different category than the sleep paralysis uh, type okay. uh, state, right? But so it's not totally clear why you might have um, these parasomnias, but they're probably related to things like uh, um, nocturnal arousal, meaning that your brain is mm -hmm. more active at night. So I'm guessing things like anxiety, uh, maybe even trauma. Huh. And things like that can, oh. can be a precipitating factor, making your amygdala, the emotional part of the brain, to be more uh -huh. active during night. And so you wake up uh, during, or you partially wake up. That's the whole thing. You're not awake, but you're partially awake. So you start walking, or you might, in some cases, like, yeah, as you said, just... I had my, my little brother, he told me he was... Uh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't tell the story, but anyway, he'll, he'll survive. <laughs> he, he, was, uh, he was playing soccer, so he wait, woke up in the middle of the night and started, started to play, uh, play soccer. And, uh, you know, so he's now... Uh, he's a physician now and, and, uh, and, and don't do these kind of things. As, at least he doesn't tell me he does, but... Uh, <laughs> doesn't want you sharing his stories, you know? <laughs> no, but it's, but it's interesting that the whole sleep uh, eating disorder, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, right? So they wait, well, yeah. they wake up and they'll eat like frozen foods, like dog foods, and like they will mm -hmm. prepare foods and cut their fingers. And it's weird. Yeah. Like, how does the brain, like what's going on? And they will have this uh, proclivity to eat um, carbohydrates. And mm -hmm. it's really bizarre. And, and, and the sleep sleepwalking, the type where they will drive, I mean, what's going on there in the brain? Like, how can the brain yeah. actually allow you to drive and navigate through like a, like a street, you know, uh, while you're, uh, yeah. you're sleeping technically? Um, so, yeah, that's uh, quite the thing. Yeah, it's really interesting and, and dangerous, you know, for a lot of people. There's someone I'm sure a lot of people know on TikTok. Her name is Selena, but she has cameras she's placed in her home to record her sleepwalking wow. but her husband if he hears her get up gets up because he's a because she's left like walked out of the house they live in a really cold climate yeah. and you know it's if it's negative 10 degrees out you can't be walking out in your pajamas yeah. so he really worries about her and she um she says it's when she eats certain foods like if she eats too much cheese yeah. or certain carbohydrates she will wake up and i wonder it's just, in, it's interesting. Do so we, she eats certain foods and yeah. that leads her to wake up and have these uh, sort of, yeah. Uh, my guess would be that they are somehow disrupting her sleep or, or mm -hmm. allowing her not to sleep as, as deeply. Uh, that's just my guess, you know, it could be something along those lines. It has to do really with, uh, to the best of my knowledge, 
know, having fragmented sleep or not having, uh, being, having stable and robust sleep, allowing you to sort of smoothly uh, sleep through the night and, and cycle through these stages in a, in a, uh, in a good, uh, robust way. So that's, uh, I think what is going on. Well, sleep paralysis though is, is a bit different. There's the, the, mm-hmm. It seems like certain genes that regulate your sleep-wake cycle, when these are yeah. out of whack, uh, that's, um, you know, you are more likely to have sort of chronic frequent sleep paralysis. It runs in families, for example. And when you travel, oh. so when I go to a, uh, um, like I travel maybe on a lecture tour or something like that, and mm-hmm. I go into this like hotel and there's like ceilings, ceilings are high and it feels like ancient uh you know, whatever Scottish, and then I have sleep paralysis. I go, oh my God, this place is haunted, right? It looks like a haunted yeah. castle. But in fact, my sleep is uh, is probably messed up at that time because I'm I'm traveling. So that can explain why um, I, I have potentially uh, you know sleep paralysis occur uh, at that moment. So, so yeah, because I would I would assume that when if we do travel at least personally i can speak to this that like when i do travel same as you right i'm in a hotel and it's like i don't you don't quite feel safe so i don't know if i actually go to full sleep you know what i mean it's like yeah 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 that's the almost like part of my brain is still awake that's exactly (laughs) right so i wanted i I didn't want to overcomplicate it but exactly so hypervigilance when so your brain Mm -hmm. is hypervigilant when you are in these scenarios and it makes sense right so the that when we sort of live in, we used to live in a certain cave. And then if you go to another cave, you know, you know, things are more uh, unsure, you know, predators might come that you're not aware of from certain places. And so Mm -hmm. you tend to be more terrified and scared, or, you know, at least your brain is subconsciously more uh, hypervigilant to threat. And of course that would lead you not to have as deep sleep and also just be, just be more conscious, just more aware of anything uh, threatening. Uh, So yeah, Yeah. that's another Another Which point. would make sense. So then we could hypothesize, or maybe it's been proven, because um, you did mention trauma being kind of attached to some of these parasomnia, sleep paralysis, yeah. because, and that now I do, this is like where I can get nerdy as the amygdala, because that's like in my lane of what I talk with a lot of my patients and viewers about. Of course. If that uh, threat center, stress response system yeah. is on more high alert or let's say we already have symptoms of PTSD so we are more hypervigilant in our waking time it would make sense that we're also hypervigilant in our sleep time and I know that a lot of my patients who have a trauma in their background can have night uh, like nightmares that are flashbacks it can wake them up so I would assume it's an easy kind of connection to say that those of us with a history of trauma are more likely to have sleep disturbances as a whole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they more likely to have sleep disturbances as a whole. So have nightmares per se, and then particularly also sleep paralysis. That's exactly what our Mm -hmm. research shows. So we've done a lot of tons of studies on this. And it seems like, you know, when you have PTSD trauma or elevated trauma symptoms, you're more likely to have sleep paralysis. and, and so that's really interesting, and it shows you that connection, um, you, know, uh, with, uh, you know, elevated amygdala activa- activation. But also mm-hmm. what I think is even more intriguing and more interesting is that our research particularly points to the fact that sleep paralysis itself can be so terrifying and so, you know, overwhelming that potentially it can be a small trauma in itself, like a small oh. potentially traumatizing experience. And, and that's interesting. So if you have these small repeated traumas occur and occur and you can imagine with each time they become more intense right potentially more Mm -hmm. intense and more intense you know you will say uh and they yeah so over time they will escalate and potentially lead to to uh uh, ptsd like uh symptoms at a clinical level so yeah that's that's quite uh quite the thing yeah that's yeah and that's really interesting because we do i mean more recently so i wrote a book that came out last year yeah about trauma and trauma is really not my specialty or it wasn't like in school and in my trainings. It was definitely more like self-injury eating disorder focus, but what's the root cause of a lot of those is trauma. So it just kept coming up in my practice and in my time online. And um, one of my good friends who does EMDR, which I would love to get your take on after this as well, just because of REM sleep and how they, they say EMDR, you know, what your thoughts are about that. But she talked a lot about big T traumas and little T traumas and what you're saying about kind of these night nightmares or scary sleep scenarios, like a sleep paralysis experience. If, if you see a ghost and think, like you said, I'm going to die. Oh my God. Like that's 
terrifying, right? Yeah. We know that to be traumatized, we have to just be scared of our own safety or the safety of someone else. So yeah. there you have it, that these little T's build up in the same way one big T could cause PTSD symptoms. These little T's can build up and lead to symptoms of PTSD as well. And I think at least... I just wanted to repeat that a little because I know it could be extremely validating for someone out there who feels like it just keeps re-traumatizing them yeah. and thinking maybe I'm making it into more than it is. But no, it, you're terrified. It's scary and you can't move if it is, you know, the sleep paralysis experience. It's, I can't think of something scarier. Oh, 100%. So, okay, so let me take you back. So there was actually this study done, uh, and this was my colleague, uh, Rich McNally, uh, who I work with at Harvard, and, and he... Um, did some studies showing that people who have the perception that their sleep paralysis is in fact uh, space alien abduction, right? So they lie and they mm -hmm. can't move, they can't speak. And there's these ghosts, uh, these uh, alien creatures that will experiment on them and things like that. When these guys hear audio recordings, you know, of themselves narrating their experience, they will display physiological reactions that are as mm. powerful as somebody with PTSD. So when you compare their sweating, their heart rate, their blood pressure, it is as profound as somebody who has been in actual war. Okay, so just from wow. having sleep paralysis and perceiving that as an alien abduction, you will have war-like, PTSD-like symptoms. So that shows you how powerful, powerful it is. And actually there was a, an eminent psychiatrist, um, John Mack, uh, mm -hmm. who, who said that these experiences actually were potentially real, that something was happening that wasn't just the brain. He was playing with that idea. So he was over at Harvard Medical School. And you can imagine the controversy that this led to because this, this guy was, you know, saying this. Um, and, and he's a very sincere, very smart guy. And, and uh, you know, he has a big book and with hundreds of interviews and stuff like that. But it shows you it's a real... You know, it's, you're lying and sleeping, but you have all these real, you know, genuinely powerful, uh, you know, uh, things happen uh, in your brain, right? So Yeah, so and it's almost like the, the, our perception of what's going on in our personal experience is all that's relevant what's because that's what we're going to react to, 100%, right? 100%. And then our research, what it shows you is, and this is kind of like the punchline of our research, is that... Um, when you live in a culture, when you live in a place where there's like cultural ideas about what sleep paralysis is, and when it's really thought as something really terrifying, like a ghost coming mm -hmm. at night, it has certain, you know, there's a whole narrative around the ghost. Like it looks like mm -hmm. this, it does this, it will potentially kill you. Uh, what tends to happen then, people will have longer paralysis or perceived paralysis. They will have oh. greater fear to the extent they will think they will die from it. And also what you'll find that the episodes are much more frequent. You know, so they mm. have, have it like, I think it's like three times more often. So something is happening. Oh, wow. It's sort of, sort of like a placebo uh, or nocebo effect, which is the placebo's evil twin, twin right? So that's <laughs> where you imagine something bad and then you see all these physiological reactions. Your reality is being molded and shaped by your own thoughts and expectations. So mm -hmm. I, I use this example called the Little Lisa, Little Lisa example to, sh to illustrate what I mean because it really uh, captures as well. So... Imagine this girl called Little Lisa, right? She lives with her grandmother somewhere uh, on this fictitious island. And her grandma, grandmother says, look, there's this, these, uh, this creature. It looks like this. It, it's called the boogeyman. It will come at night and attack you, choke you, strangle you. Now, Little Lisa will go to bed and have sleep paralysis for the first time. She's never had it before. She will have it for the first mm. time. And she will see the ghost her grandmother was telling her. Exactly that ghost will appear in front of her. Uh, and the question is why, what's going on, right? So mm -hmm. the thing we think is going on based on our research uh, is that she will start to then, first of all, she will have anxiety. We talked about anxiety will trigger you to wake yep. up during REM and have disrupted REM, right? Disrupted sleep per se, but also REM sleep. So that's the first predisposing factor. Second, she will probably start to monitor any paralysis sensations, really looking for somebody holding her down, choking her, strangling mm -hmm. her, just like her grandmother said, right? So she'll start yeah. uh, surveying her bodily sensations and anything, you know, holding her, pinning her down. And then when she wakes up, she will uh, start, you know, it's almost like dream mentation, which is this dream imagery will sort of take over like top down from the sort of uh, 
more sort of her own imagination of her dreams will sort of color what the hallucinations then will look like and what the scenario her brain will come up with, right? So it will fit mm-hmm. the, the descriptions of her grandmother. She wakes up the next day. She's more, she's terrified. Uh, in fact, her fear will cause her to have sleep paralysis the following night and two nights again and the third night, you see, so it becomes potentially yeah. chronic and it builds up. And then one month later, she go, my God, uh, you know, I'm possessed. This is personal. You know, this thing is after me. My soul is being devoured and she might potentially develop anxiety, potentially uh, PTSD from these from these small T's building up. And then she goes yeah. to the village and tells her friends in school about this monster. You know, so the, the they virus all. is spreading yeah. to them <laughs> and they will start having it. So this is what I sort of call the panic hallucination model. But it's really the punchline of my research in, in these various countries Um this strange phenomenon of, of a mind-body interaction of this sort, right, mm-hmm. of this caliber, which I think is, is uh, quite striking. Yeah, and I mean, it makes sense if we think about it from a like, n- neurological perspective where we're like, oh, okay, so if my amygdala is triggered because I, I think there's a threat, yeah. and in that story, little Lisa, like she's told by her grandmother that there is a threat. There is a threat. So then she's on hyper alert. Like we were talking about being in a hotel and not being able to fully rest because you're like, yeah. somebody could get in. This isn't my home. I don't, you know, am I safe? Exactly. So she already feels not safe. Yeah. Okay. Then, of course, that would happen. You know what I mean? And then you could see how that one thing could lead to another. One thing could lead to another. Exactly. Yeah, it's really interesting. Someone, one of my viewers asked, and I don't know if it does, I don't think there's an answer to this. Like, I think it doesn't matter, but she was wondering if age has anything to do with it. Because as a child, she had a bunch of sleep paralysis experiences, and as an adult, she hasn't. Do we find any correlation with age in this? Or We haven't more? seen anything. It, it does uh, mm-hmm. happen in children. We know it happens even in, in animals and cats and dogs, like the REM paralysis. We can't, you know, uh, it seems mm-hmm. like they might also have sleep paralysis in some of the observations. But no, my, my guess would be in her case, maybe something like the, the her sleep becoming stabilized with, with time. Um, um, did, you, did you talk about that either? Like maybe she had more stable sleep with time, less excitable, maybe like her cortex, the top part of the brain that's maybe matured over time. This is, my, this is me speculating. Uh, but yeah. you no, know, I haven't seen like actual research correlation per se showing that it becomes less... Uh, with time, in uh, mm-hmm. in fact, well, in fact, in theory, the only thing that I can think of is excitability as a as a young child. Mm-hmm. But that's the only thing. I can think of. Yeah, and it, it, that's interesting because that my brain automatically went to well, I would assume either a you've been like working through maybe some of the traumas or upsets you had as a child, mm-hmm. or those upsets as an adult. Now you just don't have them anymore because you have more perspective or more experience. So you realize something's not as frightening mm-hmm. or maybe you're now removed from a, a bad environment. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. if we had an abusive parent or a volatile parent at the very least, um, I could understand that we could probably struggle, especially based on like even that story of like little Lisa, if we don't think that things around us are as scary, no one's told us that story or the person who was scary to us isn't around anymore. All of those factors could take, not take away our sleep paralysis, but make the, I don't know how often it happens. It would go down potentially, right? Absolutely. Like, so if you have, again speculating, no, 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 that no, that it's a good speculation because that's what uh, is a definitely a contributing factor. If you are anxious, if you have higher uh, so baseline anxiety and and higher sort of uh, you know more more alert to threat, and you have a threat threatening environment, yes, definitely. Then that would lead you to have more sleep paralysis. Uh, that's uh, shown by research that that is definitely a correlation there, very strong. Uh, so yeah, if in her, her environment became more safe and she felt more, she had worked through some of these traumas, then that could definitely uh, be something. Yeah, and out of curiosity, do we have any idea why we see images, like why we see ghosts? Or yeah, I've heard from my audience all sorts of things: black blobs in a corner, yeah. um, angels, ghosts, demons. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. So that's that's a great question. So my research roughly is, so there's this whole empirical realm of things around the world and looking at, at, at people and anxiety and trauma and all that. Um, but another interest of mine is to look at or think about at least what's going on in the brain. Why do people actually see this ghost? Because this was my, from a teenager to now, like why would your brain come up with this ghost? What's going mm-hmm. on? 
So what we think is going on has to do with a sense of self or body image. Uh, body image, not in the clinical sense that you think about body image, probably Katie, in the sense of like anorexia and all that, but more sort mm-hmm. of the body image of the neurological rooted sense of me being baland, anchored in this physical body. Uh, that feeling is, of course, created in the brain. And uh, gotcha. If I lose an arm, for example, God forbid, in an accident, I will, I, in some cases, you will feel the arm is still present. You'll have a phantom limb. That's because in your brain, there is a, a map of your entire body, you know, in the regions of the you know, superior, superior parietal lobule, just using technical terms here, where mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. like a sense of self or body image mapped on. It's sort of like on that, on that area of the brain, right? And so we have mm-hmm. that, and it allows us to feel anchored in the body. But, but that part of the brain or that body image, a sense of self can be disrupted in certain instances. So if I take an electrical current and I zap that part of the brain, I disturb it, you might feel like mm-hmm. the sense of self is now out there. I've created a ghost so we can actually- Oh, create, interesting. Yeah, I can, I can uh, you know, uh, make a ghost out of you, for example, by you know, zapping that <laughs> yeah. part of the brain and you will have like a ghost-like um, uh, bubble. And so we know there is that, right? And so- mm-hmm. How might that part of the brain, we think, so how might it get disturbed during sleep paralysis lead it to have, for example, out-of-body experiences? So during sleep paralysis, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but you can have a simple out-of-body experience where you see yourself floating out Mm. in space. So you see a copy of yourself. Oh, so is it... Uh, just sorry I, I like my brain goes to is it part dissociation like that's what I think of like that removal from self yeah. and that like floating I hear that from a lot of my patients when our system gets overwhelmed yeah. I always call it our brain pulling the ripcord it's like ah, I'm yeah. out of here yeah. yeah yeah do you think that's like connected in some way to I think that it's very connected it's very connected so what you're talking about it's the clinical phenomenon of a dissociation which is very common mm-hmm. during sleep paralysis as well just the feeling of being disassociated from the self or feeling like you're watching yourself up from the outside. So we have tons of like mm-hmm. patients uh, or people with sleep paralysis saying, I saw myself from the outside looking at myself being eaten by a tiger, for example. So, Ooh, you know, mm-hmm. so we have things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? Obviously, uh, the dissociation, as, as you will know very well, of course, is because it's a sense of allowing us to see things in a more objective way. We can't deal with the trauma or the traumatizing mm-hmm. situation. So the brain is clever. It says, well, the hell with it. I'm just going to be a different person now. And so it will recruit some of these uh, regions of the brain, allowing you to see yourself from the outside, right? So, so that's mm-hmm. what we think is going on in dissociation. It, it uses some of these structures in the parietal lobes, I told you, the, where, you, where you become disembodied, right? So mm-hmm. this is very interesting. Now, um, so during sleep paralysis, ter- you know, if you are ter- you know, lying there terrified and you feel like you're mm-hmm. going to die, then in some, some cases your brain is going to, uh, you know, allow you to become dis- dissociated, right? So that, that can Yeah, occur. of course. But also, it's more than that, I think, and, and I've postulated uh, with colleagues, mm-hmm. is that, look, when you are lying there sleeping uh, and you are unable to move or speak and you're starting to, starting to wake up, you will tell your body, you'll say, Baland, Baland, get out of here. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, a, there's something yep. terrifying happening, happening, right? So you send all these commands to move, but there's no feedback but coming But then you back. can't. You can't, right? Yeah. There's no feedback coming back from your limbs, right? Normally when, it, I don't want to become too technical, but it's actually not that technical, okay? So it's kind of simple. Okay. It's basically this. Okay. So when you're in a wakeful person, the way that movement and stuff happens is that I send commands to my body. I say, Baland, move. Mm-hmm. And then I yep. have feedback coming back from my moving body, telling my, that region of the brain I told you about, how to create a sense of balance. It says, oh, mm-hmm. feedback, is, feedback is coming back. Your, your arm is out here. And it creates a sense of ang- being anchored here and now in space. So that is created by the feedback coming back from the moving limbs, the moving arm mm-hmm. and stuff, right? But during sleep paralysis, you're sending these commands to move move but there's no feedback coming yeah, back from the nothing body. nothing is yeah. there right and so based on that we think that the brain is sort of perhaps engaging in auto completion auto completion or auto correction sort of filling in the blanks for you allowing you to hallucinate limbs like i saw my limbs being floated mm-hmm. up, you know up and down and all that stuff and so we think that there's something going on with the body image being uh you know, disturbed, leading, leading you to have these out-of-body experiences. And then occasionally you might interpret that shadow-like being 
as a different uh, person, not yourself, but a, a threatening figure. Gotcha. And, and then you project agency and intentions into that, like you do in dreams, mm-hmm. right? You you project mm-hmm. agency and intentions into like monsters and evil serial killer killers and all that stuff, right? So the yeah. same thing here. You say, oh my God, there's a shadow. You project evil intentions agencies into that and then your brain builds a scenario oh i i'm paralyzed something is holding me down that's why i'm paralyzed oh my yeah. breathing is it's feels like something is pressuring my chest well that's because during rem sleep you have automatic breathing and when you try to control that it'll feel like something yeah, it fights holding. back it fights back exactly and so you interesting build a story around that so that's what we think and that makes sense because that's the great thing about our brain and our just our who we are is it's really adaptive right it tries to make sense of the nonsensical Absolutely. which sometimes can be detrimental hence my job you know trying to like unlearn some of the things we've tried to make sense of or say this is why this took place yeah. but but that does especially in regards to sleep paralysis because if we feel these sensations and we don't have any real explanation then we're looking around in our environment to try to explain it. And everybody has shadows or dark parts in their room or if not, if not the whole room. Yep. So we, it's easy. I mean, as someone who like, I'm sure everybody's this way at some points in time, but like if my husband's not home, I don't sleep as well. Yep. And I swear to God, I can wake up and look in the corner and I could imagine somebody's getting in the window. You know, you can do that to yourself. Course, and like, and it's kind of like that version, but when you're already asleep, that's so interesting. Yeah, and then when you sleep, uh, definitely, you know, because you're, you're in a vulnerable position, right? Your predators mm-hmm. could come at any point. So your brain's even more sort of, uh, you know, alert to these kinds of scenarios. So, yeah, this is, uh, it's your brain is a storyteller at the end of the day, and it loves to tell stories. It, it works with yeah. the narrative, and as we see during dreams, right? So mm-hmm. Well, narrative is everything. It's how we make sense of our world. Even as little kids, when they come back in from, let's say a child's been out playing with friends all day, they come in, they want to tell you the story, even if it's not fully put together, you know, they're like, so I was out and then I played with, you know, they want to tell you their whole day from beginning to end or their whole experience, because in a way it's, at least from my understanding, it's like our brain processing what took place and stories is how it does that. It does. It does. It does have these mechanisms to sort of anchor yourself in time and, and sort of put yourself in there and then build a narrative. And that's what we see you know, I think dreams illustrate that very well. Like we take ideas from our daily mm-hmm. lives and we mix them in novel, unique, uh, unrelated way. That's interesting. It's very unrelated and novel and unique. Uh, and then we build a story around that. So, uh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think just out of curiosity, do you think there's any, uh, you know, how people believe dreams tell us something. Do you think there's any truth in that, that there's any real value in our dreams? It's a good question. So, it comes, it's, it's actually, it's a, very, it's a very penetrating question because it, it then, it leads, it gets to the core of who I am as a person, right? There's a subjective Baland who views the world in a certain way. I have an experience, I interpret that. And then there's the objective scientist that looks at things from a scientific, objective point of view. Mm-hmm. So if you tell me the subjective person, you know, if I take in all my own beliefs and, uh, you know, then, then, then yes, there could potentially be a deeper meaning and, you know, significance to dreams that's just my own beliefs about the world that i'm open-minded in, in that i don't want to say open-minded that's but i'm i'm open to i know what you mean though. i'm open to yeah. things i'm not a reductionist in that sense right so some scientists just believe in this uh you know your senses and the empiricism and what you can sense in the world i'm i'm i have a larger vision of of, of that um so so there is that layer but the way i usually say katie is that I look at things from multiple perspectives. So I say there's a psychological explanation, could be trauma, could be things that can contribute to your dreams and the stories you tell yourself in, in dreams. There could be another significant layer of your brain in doing certain things uh, and, and or having to work with sense, certain stimuli. For example, we know that if you live sleep in a cold room, you know, you will feel like maybe you're on a, on a Greenland, you know, having, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, wrestling with ice bears or something, you know, like <laughs> that is no, or if you're, there's smoke in the room, you'll feel like you're in a house and it's on fire. So, so mm-hmm. I think there's multiple mechanisms and layers. And then ultimately you could say, well, is there also a spiritual layer? This is where you go even further. Right. And then that's where um, as a scientist can't comment much, but you know what I mean? That there's that, that layer. Yeah. Some people will say, Oh, it could also mean this and that. And I, I, I do want to touch upon that though, even though I, uh, I'm not, uh, it's not my expertise area, but 
you know, there's people like uh, like genius in history, like geniuses like Ramun, Ramanujan, the great Indian mathematician. Have you heard of him? It's like he's like a like he's 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 like this guy who came from India and just revolutionized math in very short a very oh, short wow. time at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. He was an extreme genius, and he would say, "Look, all my ideas come you come from like God in in a dream or something like that. You know, it's all oh, spiritual. Wow. You know, so you so you have interesting, so you yeah. Have, yeah. So you have interesting things like that too. So uh, as a scientist, we can always uh, sort of look back and 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 you know uh, find these things amusing. You know, it's it's, it's interesting to look at and. It's a tricky thing being, and not that I, I don't even necessarily consider myself a scientist, but it, I'm part of the social sciences, right? So part of what I do is reading research and like parsing data and, you know, looking at post hoc analysis of what's taken place. And then there's also the part of me that looks at people and their experiences. Yeah. And it's tricky. It's like a balance, right? Because balance, yeah. I feel like if you get too much into one or the other, you miss things. You so it's almost this balance of like, hey, this is the data. This is what we we through research know to be true and then this is what people are experiencing and there's always some overlap yeah but yeah it's almost like without both parts you don't you you can't get the answer to anything you know it's like so dreams dreams could from what you know in the research you've done we kind of know where they're coming from and I've always been of that mind where it's like bits of our day in our life that we just try to put into a story to make sense of it and it's kind of processing things yeah you know, for lack of a better term. And, but then people like just the other day, I got a message from a viewer that was like, I had this dream that you were pregnant. And I always think of pregnancy as like, you're going to birth something new, not like a child, but like pregnant with an idea, pregnant with a, you know, a a change, growth, things like that. And I'm like, it doesn't really mean that. I don't know. You know, you know, one can speculate, of course. I think, I think, um, if you told somebody 100 years ago that, um, that look on your skin right now you have all these animals crawling right these like mm-hmm. billions trillions of them they'll say god kill this you know hang this guy yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. and now then we invented the microscope and you look you know my god you know a vast majority of your cells are bacterial cells like all over yeah. your, you know so what i'm saying is maybe there's a microscope or something we have to invent in 500 years mm. in order for us to understand different realms and dimensions but as a scientist i yeah. can only speculate and, and sort of find these things interesting but I would, ha- of course, I have to rely on, uh, you know, pure, rigorous science for now. But but I remain open minded. That's the thing in my own life. Mm-hmm. I said, look, there is a subjective vantage point to to the to the world that that is very hard to sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, put words on. Like, how do you explain explain to a Martian what? the redness of red is right he can only say oh you can yeah. measure like wavelengths you know get into the eye your brain is active and you process this but how do you explain what red is or what love is or something like that right and yeah. so there is some sub- subjective nature to ex- our experience that um it's very hard to just describe in a third uh uh person perspective if that makes sense no it totally makes sense it's almost like i don't know if this even is the right word but it's like uh, intangible like you can't intangible. you can feel it obviously it's like tangible in your life but it's like how do you explain something that you experience to exactly. someone else it's going to be so different person to person right my exactly. experience of love is going to be different from your experience of love or how I would describe the color purple is going to be different from how you might describe it yeah. because we each have our own subjective experience yeah that's it's so interesting I can see why this is such a fascinating field because I don't know it's like getting into first of all the brain is extremely fascinating to me but also what it does when we're not active is is interesting and I I mentioned earlier and I I don't know if you have any thoughts about this but uh, a lot of my patients have found relief from trauma symptoms so if we're talking about maybe sleep paralysis or or different sleep issues coming out of trauma or this mode of hypervigilance people found um, EMDR or eye movement desensitization reprocessing which is like for anybody who doesn't know, it's like, you know, when you follow a finger, a light, or you can like even tap, you know, sides of your body, it's like bilateral stimulation, they call it. So tapping left, then right, back and forth, back and forth. And from from what I've read, again, I, I'm not trained in it. I don't offer it in my practice, yeah. but I know that they have told, or the, what it's speculated is that it mimics REM sleep and like what our eyes do and that gives our brain another chance to process the trauma. It's, do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah. It's a great question. It's, it's a, 
complicated one, but it's a very interesting question because uh, so that lady Shapiro or whatever her name mm-hmm. was, she was mm-hmm. she was actually walking over uh, in, in in San Francisco and discovered this method uh, from just walking and thinking about negative stuff, and then she realized when I'm walking, it's almost like the same as my eyes moving back and forth. She drew some kind of uh, you know conclusion from that, and then she would find that that would make uh, you know the trauma less. And now it seems like there's research pointing to the fact that um, it does seems to reduce amygdala activation. So there's a lot of strength to that whole thing now. Meaning like, uh, I remember like five or six years ago, I was having conversation with colleagues uh, over in Boston. Mm-hmm. They would say, oh, maybe more than that. But they would say, oh, this is nonsense. What EMDR, like moving your eyes makes no sense. But then later on, we would just laugh at ourselves saying, wow, it turns out it actually seems to be working. Like when you move your eyes, you're, something is happening and you can process your, your traumas like that. And so to be honest, like I actually sometimes when I'm stressed, I will move my eyes back and forth mm-hmm. and I will feel better. So it seems like it is, you know, not for my own subjective thing, but it, but it, there, you know, it does seem to reduce the activation of these fear centers of the brain and these anxiety centers of the brain. So, so there's something very powerful to it. Um, yeah, I'm very optimistic about it, uh, and it could be potentially. Um, I've heard actually one thing that mimics uh, the fact that when we are walking we are facing mm-hmm. threat, right? So if you're walking, uh-huh. uh, you are facing, uh, so if there's uh, something threatening in your life, normally if you are in a, th- uh, a threat, a threatening situation, you run away, right? you, you flee. But yeah. if you face it, that is almost going towards it, causing your amygdala to be less active. And when you are moving your eyes, you're mimicking the visual scope that would be uh, similar to you actually walking in a straight uh, path towards something. So I've heard mm. uh, that being... Uh, I explain that uh, you know you know uh as as one explanation for that but but yeah it's it's ter- certainly very interesting um yeah i think it could be useful yeah i mean i've i've heard great things from many patients and many viewers over the years and it's obviously it's like anecdotal you know i don't know what the end of my study would be let's say like 100 or 200 um so it's not a huge swath of people but i the more I read about it and the more I, and I'm like you, like I'll try it out on myself. And even my, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman, who practices it, yeah. I did a video with me and I did the tapping while she talked me through stressful times in my life. And I found it really interesting because it was, it was calming yeah. and you know, it's sometimes things with the brain. You're like, I don't really know what's happening, but it, if, if it's positive, if it helps someone and it's not hurting anything, yeah. it's like, don't knock it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but it's just interesting. It's very interesting, mm-hmm. but I definitely, definitely, you know, the research points to the fact that it's just no, no, not simply a, a placebo. The placebo is great. We love the placebo. It works in about 50% of cases, you know, <laughs> very powerful. But this is actually doing something to your brain that will shift you into that parasympathetic, relaxed kind of state of, of being. Yeah. And, and, and it's doing something uh, with the amygdala and those circuits by moving your eyes and is it mimicking REM? I'm not sure. I haven't looked at that link very well, but we do certainly know that REM sleep is uh, is extremely important for processing emotions. I mean, if you look at people with depression, the first thing you will mm-hmm. see is that their REM sleep is shifted. So REM sleep mm-hmm. will become more sort of, uh, it will sort of intrude on deep sleep. So it turns out, you know, that their deep uh-huh. sleep during the first, uh, so we, we mentioned that these stages uh, of, of, of yeah. sleep occur. So during the stage, the first 90 minute cycle, your deep sleep will be totally reduced and REM will take over. It will say, I need to process these emotions. Something bad is going on right now. So you will have less deep sleep and much more REM just to process all those emotions that are going awry in your life. But of course, it comes at a price. Then you don't have deep sleep that would allow you to... Yeah, which is like when you clean your brain out, essentially. When you clean your brain out and you can prevent things like Alzheimer's and all that. So, mm-hmm. But your brain says, look, this is this is serious. You know, there's something going on. Why is this person releasing all this cortisol during the day? Why is the amygdala so active? Let's, let's yeah. do something about it. And let's just put this person in the state where they will have dense, strong and a REM sleep just taking over the whole thing and allowing you to process the emotions. Uh, but, you know, that's why you want to deal with depression really early and, and prevent it from, you know, uh, yeah, causing too much, uh, you know, damage. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know. I know 
like I'm working on a video even right now about depression in the brain and because there's brain scans showing the differences of what areas are lit up and what areas like aren't as active essentially active and inactive um and how it it can even it changes our brain a little bit I didn't know it I mean it makes sense that if REM is the emotion is like processing emotion that if you're having a hard time you're going to have more of that so do you think that then people who let's say have repeated traumas in their life that I know in this, not to get too in the weeds, but are you familiar with the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study? Adverse Childhood, I'm not, if you mention it, maybe I will have heard about it. What? Okay, it's, I mean, it's definitely more like in my realm of things. Like, I don't know why, you know, you would have read about it or heard about it, but essentially what, it was an old study, I think in like 1996, yeah. I might be off by a couple of years. Yeah. They, uh, it was Kaiser Permanente and I don't know if it was the, CDC, but it was some big organization. They did this huge study, thousands of people, and they had them fill out these ACEs questions. It's an ACEs questionnaire. And it's all about adverse childhood experiences. And so there are things from like, did, did you ever fear for your life before you were 18? Did someone in your you know family or in your life threaten your safety? Yeah. Did anybody you knew like a parent or a close family member go to jail. Uh-huh. Um, I had, you know, and so essentially it's, it's going through little by little different adverse uh, traumas, yeah. really. They yeah. could call them adverse childhood experiences or we can just call them traumas. Yeah. And the higher the ACEs, meaning the more traumas we've had, yeah. then the more predisposed we are to other medical complications, things like Alzheimer's, things like high blood pressure, yeah. things like, uh, uh, diabetes and heart disease and mm-hmm. there was this whole list of things and yeah. it it's all it just like sparked I'm like you know when things come together where I'm mm-hmm. like oh my god okay well if deep sleep is limited because yeah. I know how important that is for for other you know for the cleaning of the brain and for us to be able to go on and have healthy you know whether it is Alzheimer's or even just, just have be able to think clearly yeah just have mm-hmm. energy even like you know you see the past yeah. people that tell you I have, I have no energy I can't do anything I feel like I'm and there's a biological reason. I mean, you're 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 yeah. you're not getting deep sleep, you know, as, as you should. So, but yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, and like concentration difficulties, oh, symptoms of depression, 100%. makes total sense. Well, the 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 uh, the, the hippocampus is about uh, reduced by so the hippocampus for your viewers is the part of the brain, mem- the memory part mm-hmm. of the brain, right? It will be reduced mm-hmm. by twenty yes. percent in the people with depression. So there's a twenty percent reduction that's been shown over in the UK, right? So wow. you have that. Yeah. You have the cortical region, meaning that part of the brain that has to do with sort of impulse control, controlling your sort of instincts and your just ability to like control yourself from overeating and all that. That part would become thinner from from depression. And Interesting. So you're having yeah. all of these things uh, occur. So you have a sluggish. Uh, brain control center you can't mm-hmm. focus you can't you know remember things you know um and then yeah you have all that and it makes total sense with that with that study and it fits a lots of other research as well it's like really showing that if you lose a parent early then mm-hmm. you are much more likely to uh, develop depression and uh so yeah it's it's this helplessness kind of uh you know if you haven't sort of you have meaning if you have a life where you are a child and the worst thing happened in the world, like losing a parent or a big trauma, right? Then you say, yeah. oh my God, this doesn't make sense. Whatever I do, I can't change circumstances. And so you just kind of say, well, this is out of control. And, and you continue to have these like uh, these symptoms throughout life and, you know, leading to, but, but yeah, definitely very interesting. And then, but all the trigger, all the uh, biological sort of markers you mentioned with diabetes and all that stuff, high blood pressure, Definitely could be also sleep mediate, mediated, meaning sleep is, if you're disturbing sleep, then you will have, you know, worse you know, blood pressure, you will have worse diabetes. Yeah. And it all feeds on each other. And, and, and so now, so. I know that's what's so fascinating. I think that's why I find sleep in just the brain. Because it, it, I, I think, for, or not I think, I know for a long time, mental illness and mental health issues as a whole have been stigmatized because, you know, quote unquote, you can't see it. It's not like a broken arm where I'm like, hey, belong, look, I broke, you know, broke my forearm and you can see it's broken. Yeah. This is like, hey, I don't feel like myself. Yeah. I'm you know, more lethargic. I can't concentrate. My sleep is disrupted. My appetite is off. Yeah. You're like, Okay, sure. You know, I believe you, I guess. But it, that not being able to see it now has become untrue because we actually can see it. Yeah, because if we can, it. if you, 
you know, get scans of the brain, you can see like you're talking about like a 20% reduction in the hippocampus, which I know is memory, you know, we know it's a memory formation area. So that's why you can't recall things like you used to, or, um, even when the amygdala like is overactive, it gets enlarged. Is we can actually enlarged? see it become enlarged. Yeah. So then it would be triggered more easily. And then like other parts are thinned parts of like impulse control, things like that. So it's so fascinating to me. Um, yeah. So, so much. I'm like, there's so many places we could take this, but I guess my kind of where I want to uh, end is offering some ways that people can better manage their sleep. Like a good question, I guess, would be how much sleep should people, I know it's going to vary person to person, but how much sleep should we strive to get every night? So the, so the typical would be a sort of seven to nine would be, be good. Mm-hmm. So having seven to nine. I'm a nine. You're, you're nine? Okay. Okay. That's I good. always need nine. No, yeah. no, it's good. It's good. Get your sleep. And as long as you feel refreshed, that's, that's totally good. You know, get your sleep. It's very important. But I think more than that, as there's been studies done showing that if you get sleep that's consistent, like each night you get mm. good consistent sleep. So getting six, 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 six every night, and it's just like fits the way you work, then your brain will be very efficient and you'll get very good high, high quality sleep versus getting six, seven, eight, three, two, eight. You know oh, what I mean? Like, so yeah. getting like a consistent little is better than getting like the ups and down. But seven to nine is, is what the uh, sort of sleep specialist per se will tell you is really the, the, the sweet spot of like, getting good sleep but more than that i would say sleeping at a time that fits your sort of your temperament or sort of your really your your genes it seems to be a genetic factor for when you want to sleep right so for me i like to sleep sleep early and wake early that's kind of my uh chronotype Uh so to speak right my genetic disposition so i sleep Mm -hmm. early wake up early and i feel refreshed and, and i feel good so other people might have a bit of more tilted towards sleeping at 12, one, wake up, but, but make it consistent. That's the point and feel like find the right timing and don't change that up too much as well. Why does the consistency, is it, it makes it, it takes longer to get into deep sleep or REM sleep? It's, is that what they're it's, finding? It's a good point. The, the whole thing is that you have a regulator in your brain, a clock that regulates your sleep and regulates how much melatonin is released. So melatonin is this mm. chemical that you know tells you when to uh, sort of initiate sleep and initiate sleep, uh, sleep, sleepiness. And then you have another chemical mm. called ad- ad- adenosine, which builds up and allows you to feel really sleepy. So that's when you sort of you builds up and you get more and more drowsy and you want to sleep that's mm-hmm. adenosine that's like when you're fighting it you're like you're i gotta go to bed <laughs> yeah, exactly so these chemicals are being regulated especially melatonin is by this internal clock in the brain and so you want to make that don't want to mix that clock up too much because then your brain is this day is it night what's going on and, and, yeah. this, and this clock is directly affected actually by light so by the light mm-hmm. you know uh photons hitting your retina and activating your 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 brain you know that's gonna make that's gonna mess up this light there's pathways going from 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 there to retina and all that to to uh you know changing that that clock that internal clock um so yeah which would probably explain why we shouldn't be on our phones exactly it's it's a very it's a very important thing right to make sure you don't get that light you know or if you go to the bathroom middle of the night don't have this huge light you know of the like the the bathroom like just you know it's gonna mess up your your sleep wait cycle uh that that internal uh, regulator of, of sleep allowing you to get good restful sleep like early yeah. or whatever fits you so regularity and also like being aware of light things like light mm-hmm. and um so those are the key things some people would say don't get too sort of aroused at night uh sort of mm-hmm. psychologically too stressed or anxious because then that will also uh inhibit some of the you know the circuits in your brain that would allow you to get good sleep and restful sleep and so all of these factors do play in. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because a couple things came to mind. First of all, like I, I definitely am more of, of an anxious person. Yeah. I'm, I'm very type A. It's something I battle with. <laughs> I think it's made me successful, but it's also <laughs> detrimental in some ways. Um, and if I find myself overly agitated mentally before bed, yeah. I'll do like a shake. Okay. And it's almost like, it sounds silly, but it's like it it, it releases you know that that built-up energy or that built-up agitation That's interesting i never heard that before so you actually move do some movement and, and it kind of it's yeah. cathartic in a way it makes you more relaxed 
Yeah, it's like a, you know how my my hypothesis is that it's because my amygdala is like queuing me up because it senses some like psychological threat that's probably not there because it's anxiety driven. Yeah. Um, but it's readying me for like fight or flight. And so I'm moving in a way of like fight or flight, right? There's movement associated yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. And if I initiate that movement, it's almost like I'm giving that action a release. That's very interesting. No, no, it's the fact that it works makes it interesting. One should look into it. Uh, no, yeah, give it a try. Let me know. That you're kind of moving and it works. That's very interesting. For me, I think what can help is taking a walk. So if I, mm. I'm too many emails coming in or something and I'm like, you know, it's late and I'm kind of feeling a bit too sort of uh, stressed, then I'm just, I'll just go for a little walk. Uh, and that can, that can do it for me. That can sort of help me uh, mm-hmm. can calm down. Well. that might be the amount of movement you need do you know what i mean it's still movement i think still, and it can kind of get that out yeah yeah interesting but then the the light thing is, is fascinating to me for uh, affecting our sleep because if i do wake up to go pee in the middle of the night i like barely open my eyes which yeah. i know sounds dangerous but you know you know your space well it enough is, yeah. so it's like i kind of feel my way in i don't turn on any lights yeah. because i find it so disruptive i never even thought about it i just thought about it in the fact that like I want to go back to sleep. And because I want to go back to sleep, I just need to not be bothered by any light. Yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. Cause I've always just done that naturally, even as a kid and stuff. So well, that's a good, good things to know. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah. Are there any other tips and tools and things that people can do? Or, I mean, obviously my, my brain goes to like, I think if you find yourself having sleep paralysis a lot or sleep disturbances as a whole that, mm. or what you call them? Parasomnias, right? Parasomnias. That, that getting into therapy, talking about what's bothering you is probably going to be beneficial. Are there any other things they know of? That's hundred percent. Very good. Yeah. So anything that can make you more relaxed and, 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 and sort of dampen down these anxiety and fear centers in the brain, definitely that, that could be helpful for any of the parasomnia, sleep paralysis, you know, things like meditation, exercising, all these kind of things. For sleep paralysis per se, if it's it's really sort of, um, you know, disturbing, you have a lot of sleep paralysis, I did develop a therapy and we did test that in some studies oh. showing very interesting results. Yeah, so we did, we did a study, uh, University of Bologna collaborating with them, and we found that in patients with narcolepsy, which is this, mm-hmm. uh, um, for your viewers, it's a, it's a sleep disorder where you will, fi- you will fall asleep while maybe taking a walk or, you know, giving a lecture. I usually say if if you fall asleep uh, during one of my colleagues' lecture, then that wouldn't be a surprise. But if I fell asleep during <laughs> my own lecture, I would have narcolepsy, right? So as you fall yeah. asleep suddenly. So these guys will also have um, sleep paralysis often. So we did a study and we found that using this these techniques I developed, you we found about a 50% plus reduction in sleep paralysis after eight weeks. And But this was a small wow. pilot study, so I don't want to get... You're too excited, Katie. But it's still exciting. It was still yeah. exciting. It was still, it was still a little pilot study and with a control condition and published in a good journal, a decent journal. So it was good. It's a good first step. And it's basically four steps you apply directly during sleep paralysis, meaning that when sleep paralysis occurs, you sort of, uh, the first thing you do, you do something we called um, cognitive, was it cognitive reappraisal first? Yes. So you tell yourself, this is not too terrifying. You know, close your eyes. Mm. Don't get too scared. This is normal. Uh, you know, people have this all, all around the world. So you cognitively, mentally sort of say, okay, this is fine. And you take out the sort of the punch, you know, the, of the experience, yeah. you take it out. And then you do emotional and psychological distancing, which I'm sure you know all about. It's kind of emotionally say, okay, given it's not uh, terrifying, I'm not going to feel scared. It's not going to yeah. help for me to be, wor- you know, worry and all that. So you do these mental and emotional tricks, and then you get to the, you know, the, the, the main meal, which is you focus all your attention intensely on something positive sort of to hijack all your attention and put it on like a, you know, it could be, could be something comforting like your mother's face or your, your husband, you know, in your case, your husband's husband's face, or maybe for some people, it's a prayer, whatever feels really Mm -hmm. good for them. You do that. And then that way you prevent your attentional systems to like going to all these kind of dangerous thoughts of like ghosts and causing you to potentially have these, these visions. And then finally, the fourth step is relax. Don't try to move because when you try to move, you might, create some of these loops you have those feelings like these feelings so don't do that have a non-judgmental attitudes to it and just let it let fly by and you know lo and behold these uh kind of psychological tricks here that you know are for neuroscientists a bit you know a little bit you know on the softer side it seems to work and then now we are 
doing more research uh, on that uh, over in Boston, you know, see if how that could work even in even more people. So, yeah. So yeah. That's, uh, no, that's fascinating. And those are all tools and techniques and things that like as a therapist, I would, I would support, you know, it, we know that it works in other ways. So I don't see why it wouldn't work in those scenarios in particular. Yeah. And do you, um, just the final question I actually have is does, taking melatonin or L-theanine or magnesium or any of these like over-the-counter types of supplements, do we find those to actually be beneficial or is that something people should stay away from? That's Are we messing with our own balance? Yeah, or? That's a good point. Yeah, with melatonin, of course, it uh, could potentially be messing with some, some hormones and, and uh, mm. things like that. So you want to be maybe careful. Of course, I'm, I'm not a physician. Uh, I, of course, I'm, I'm not either. This is just us sharing chatting. in our what we do know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say I would say magnesium. I do take. I think it's uh, okay. know, it's a very good thing to take, and it can help you relax probably. And you know, but but I, I just take it because it's really it's really healthy. This is good to take, mm-hmm. right? But uh, it it does have a re- uh, relaxing effect in that way as well. Um, so magnesium definitely. Melatonin, I would probably. Uh, more careful with and then L-theanine you mentioned again I don't know much about that it's a precursor to what is a precursor to uh, I can't remember but it's is it converted into yeah. serotonin or something it's, I, it's, it's it converted into serotonin I believe so I'd have to look it up too L-theanine, real quick I think it's L-theanine uh, tryptophan serotonin but you can just have a look um, yeah it's amino acid found primarily in some teas and mushrooms uh-huh. yeah I believe it's serotonin. I'd have to really dig into my yeah, old article. It, but, doesn't, it yeah. doesn't matter, but I've heard definitely people would use it for sleep. I don't know much about it, but my thought is if I had heard it was like a really good thing, I probably could tell you it's really good. I haven't yeah. heard that it, it's really good, but you know, uh, but definitely melatonin, I would, I would, that one I would maybe consult them. Like stay away from, yeah, consult your doctor. Yeah. Be careful with. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily the safest, but. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, if I'm being honest, my patients who have taken it, sometimes because their doctors told them, other times because it's over the counter and they've heard it helps with sleep, I have yet to have someone say, oh, it's super effective and helpful. It's more like it worked for a little bit and now it doesn't. I think that's kind of. Yeah, Katie, I think what it does is it potentially maybe could help with like sleep wake cycles being disrupted. So if you are sleeping, Mm -hmm. if you are traveling and you are like going, from Europe to the U.S., something like that, and you want to sort of balance your sleep-wake cycle, then yes, maybe it could be helpful in the, for a short mm-hmm. time. But I think definitely if you take it like for long, I don't think it's it's that that helpful. And also, it's not like meant to, melatonin is not meant to particularly give you more deep sleep or REM sleep. It's kind of more the timing of sleep that it really helps with. And so, so yeah, um, maybe for travelers, if you have experience and you've consulted a doctor, you know, you know, like zone, like zones to other time zones, then, then yeah, but mm-hmm. so. And that, and sorry, I could talk to you for hours. I'll be really brief, yeah, it's interesting. but that makes my mind go to, if we take something like a sleep aid, like that's a prescribed, um, like Ambien, for example, mm-hmm. is that, do we believe that we still get deep sleep and REM sleep? Or I would assume that, I don't know. I would wonder if it would disrupt that and it actually wouldn't be effective sleep. Yeah. That's, but, a, that's a thing. Things like alcohol, things like any of mm-hmm. these uh, tranquilizers, anything like they don't give you good sleep. So yeah, sleep has a very particular architecture, right? With the stages one, two, and three and four. And then there's also a certain activation of your brain. If you like eavesdrop using EEG, like these looking at signals of the brain, mm-hmm. it's very unique, yeah. right? Each stage has its own pattern. So deep sleep will have these patterns and, and, and REM sleep will have a certain pattern. And that very particular architecture is not improved or normalized, let's say, by any of these. Even serotonin, like SSRIs, as you know, they don't, mm-hmm. they don't actually uh, um, rectify that, that architecture, which is uh, disrupted in people with uh, insomnia or depression. So no, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't help. And that's the thing. It doesn't help you get good quality sleep. Uh, for that, unfortunately, there is um, not aware. There, there is no, like, cure for that per se yeah. scientists are working interesting it. it's almost like we in order to get better sleep we and i know everybody's going to hate this answer but it sounds like we have to work on ourselves and process you know traumas better manage our anxiety through other means because if we try to chemically whether that's through medication or over-the-counter supplements or anything we're actually only going to disrupt it or at least not improve it 
Mm-hmm. So the yeah. the only way to really do it is to like do the things you're talking about and meditation, exercise, having a regular sleep time, like sleep and wake cycles, keeping those consistent. Yeah. Um, I find routines around bedtime to be kind of beneficial too, kind of like getting my body ready for sleep. Oh, yeah. Then it's like, it's, it's prepared for it. It knows it's coming. And then I spy, I spend less time laying in bed, you know, it's a very, rolling around. That's a very good point. All that is good. Uh, very, very good. So exactly your, your, these, these drugs will help not help with the architecture of sleep. And, and then the routine business is very important. Your brain sort of get cued to when to sleep and there's actually uh, work done showing that if you sleep in a hotel the first night or two or three, you'll get uh, very good sleep often. I mean, aside from the sleep, uh, paralysis we talked about, sleep paralysis and all that, but uh-huh. generally, like, meaning if you if you have insomnia and you have sort of, your brain has linked not being able to sleep with a certain bed and a certain room uh-huh. and stuff like that, you know, when you go to sleep, you just will have potentially bad sleep. And if you go to a novel environment, ideally a safe environment, then you can sometimes yeah. get suddenly good see good sleep uh like that um so yes you're having routines that the mind your brain now it's time to sleep you know relax these centers of the brain you know you know dampen these chemicals turn down the anxiety part of the brain you know uh definitely uh yeah that's interesting i could see like us attaching that right this bed means i'm not going to sleep or this area that i'm in is always going to you know wake me up is there and I promise this is the last question. <laughs> is there a reason, because I, I've heard from my audience and I know myself as well, is there a reason we tend to wake up sometimes at the same time? Like I always wake up to go pee in the middle of the night, like four hours into my sleep. Yeah. Is there a reason for that pattern? Yeah, so there's definitely something to do with con- from some kind of conditioning where people mm. wake up a certain time. It's almost like the brain learns that there's some kind of learning going on in the brain where it learns, okay, now it's time to get get up and it sort of regulates like, oh, this is maybe the second st- uh, cycle of uh, sleep cycle I've went through. Let me wake this person up at this time. So it becomes like a habit. Yeah. Uh, by habit, I mean uh, the brain-based habit, a circuit-based habit where your brain learns that. So definitely, and I've, I've had that, I've had in, for some, you know, in periods where there's been like, uh, where I've woke, woken up like four o'clock each night and it just keeps like same thing mm-hmm. what's going on i'm waking up and then yeah and then you learn then you'll teach your brain not to do that it could be by you know i don't know whatever you're doing changing your habits during the day and then you find okay i'm not i'm not waking up uh, at that time but definitely there is a brain-based reason reason why you will have these certain pattern occur uh and causing you as you say to wake up at certain times your brain is is, is really interesting with these like clocks and timing very powerful yeah. you know that it can know that now it's time you know to, to yeah. yeah without looking at a clock it knows that it's time <laughs> yeah yeah no it's, so, it's, it's very very yeah it's quite fascinating how it can do that definitely yeah this is so interesting thank you for taking the time to speak with us like i said i could talk to you for hours i find sleep in the brain this is all incredibly fascinating if people want to learn more about you or uh, read a book of yours or a podcast where can they find you how can they get more yeah, of you yeah yeah um so i'm on instagram Belan Jalal. i have a youtube channel although i don't really post that often i wish i could do more i'd love to i'm sorry it's a lot of work it's a lot of work yeah. isn't it uh Belan Jalal <laughs> as well um i do have i do have a book uh, as a clinical manual so maybe that's more sort of for you katie not for your audience but, mm-hmm. but i have a lot of clinicians that listen as well so okay. if we have cl- other clinicians out there yeah i do have a book so Belange, they can look it up it's called trans trans diagnostic uh treatment manual and it's particularly targeting muslim cultural groups so people with that sort of uh, refugees and things like that we develop mm-hmm. with a colleague over in, in boston so if anybody if you have colleagues working with refugees maybe that they can pick it up i'm making a plug for my book here uh feels mm-hmm. awkward but uh yeah. That's yeah. fine. So, so yeah. So that that is, um, yeah. Those are the places. And then, uh, yeah, I enjoyed talking to you. It's very fascinating. It's, as I feel like we could also talk for a long time. It's it's fun. Yeah, it's there's so much we could get into. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time, though. I know you're Pleasure. spending time with your family, so I don't want to take any more of it. But Absolutely. this has just been so incredibly interesting, and we'd love to have you back. Thank you. My pleasure. I'd love to. Okay. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Or why your feelings hurt You can ask her why breakups suck Or why you've hit a plateau Inquire all those questions you've always